I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found check battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. Welcome to the Foul Front Podcast, a part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. I'm your host, Ben Page, and this is your source for hunting, outdoors, and conservation conversations. In an eclectic and sometimes unorganized fashion, I appreciate you coming by. All right, welcome to the Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast. We have kind of a cool episode uh, today. I've got uh, my good buddy and friend of the show, Andrew Berthal on. I say that right, Andrew? Uh, Barthel, but Barthel. It, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, of course. Should have asked. That's the one question we didn't ask. Um, Anyways, uh, I got Andrew Barthol and I got Ian Burroughs uh, of Powder Hook, and um, we'll, we'll get into that here in a little bit. Um, but we have a, a really cool topic. I asked the Facebook group a couple weeks back. I said, hey, whoever we're going to play a game, whoever has the best um, topic to talk about, I'm going to have them onto the podcast, and we're going to do an episode with them about it. and. Andrews uh, got voted uh, number one, and so pretty pretty interesting uh, way to do things, probably. At any rate, uh, kind of the topic intro here is is that every year we're succeeding and getting new hunters that are entering the marsh uh, that have never had a mentor or very little experience in waterfowl hunting or public land hunting in general. Uh, maybe even some people who have uh, a few years under their belts with some bad habits that detract from the greater good of hunting and uh, public land use, and then the health of hunting and ultimately conservation. So in this episode, uh, we are going to talk about some of the most common and some of the worst transgressions out in the marsh to help you not be an a-hole, or at least to help you not be an ignorant a-hole. So Andrew, why did, how did we get here? Uh, you know, Ben, it's just one of those things that. Um everybody runs into everybody has to deal with um it i know that a lot of people talk about it but it's just there's so many things in this certain topic that can't be stressed enough you know there's just so many things that um are included into it that can make or break you as a hunter um they can make or break people around you you know whether it's you bringing new people on and then they have a bad experience because of things that could have been uh, avoided or <clears throat> or it's an indirect thing where you create a bad experience of another party of say maybe some novice hunters or some new hunters that that they just get turned off to because they get out there and they just have a terrible experience and and on on the note of the more experienced guys that just learn how to do things maybe not the most ideal way it's just a it's just a good topic to run over every now and then, every now and again, um, especially with the the season fast approaching. So I just felt like that would be a good um, a good one to go off of and 
evidently a lot of other people did too. So we'll run with it. Yeah. Now, uh, where are you out of Andrew? Uh, I'm in Northeast Oregon. Uh, I'm right off the uh, Columbia river, just 10 miles South of Washington state. I'm about two hours West of Idaho. So <clears throat> right off the blue mountains, um, it's high desert country gets cold in the winter, hot in the summer. Uh, yeah. Experience all four seasons. Pretty good over here. Lots of wildlife, lots of things to do. So it's not a bad place to be for an outdoorsman. Awesome. Awesome, man. And then, uh, oh man, I've been keeping Ian over in the, the corner there for a little bit. Uh, Ian, what's up? Hey, good evening. What's going on, man? Oh, this, this will be the part you have to edit out. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm here for the podcast. You are. That's what I, <laughs> I'm bad. I'm doing a really bad job. Um, oh, this is good, man. Uh, who so who are you, Ian? There we go. I can work with that. Say it again. Who are you, Ian? My name is Ian, Ian Burrow, um, and I work with the mobile phone app Powderhook, which is a free app that not only shows you where you can go hunting, uh, in terms of public land mapping uh, across all 50 states, but it also provides a social and community aspect to it where you can interact with other hunters. So if you are a new hunter and you're trying to get your feet wet and, and get a basic understanding of where to go and what to do, um, you have a lot of tools at your disposal. And at the same time, if you've been hunting for years and years, not only can you help pass on the tradition in our natural heritage but you can also learn more yourself um in terms of when you're maybe you're traveling to hunt to a place you've never been before um and our app is designed so that you can communicate with people in a geographic region so you can get instead of doing a super broad google search uh you're going to get information that's that's um tied to that region that you're looking at so anyway i work with Powderhook, um and i'm a very big advocate for public land and I absolutely love to hunt. Yeah, I thought uh, I thought it was really important to have you on because you do a lot with mentorship and a lot with public land stuff. And uh, I'm sure, well, actually, I know after all of us have kind of been trading, you know, uh, text messages and phone conversations, we've got some experiences that led us to this topic. And uh, so... I'm pretty pretty excited about that. You also do. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about your public pursuit or not? Yeah, I can highlight that real quick. Um, I started a project last year called Public Pursuit, and that was a result of drawing every single tag in the state of Kansas all at once. And so I set out to hunt every single game species in the state in one year on public land. Um, and this year, unfortunately, I didn't draw every single tag again, which kind of would have been even more nuts, but I'm carrying the project forward and I'm going to talk more about that here in a few weeks when I release the opening to what I'm calling volume two. Uh, but ultimately it's a project dedicated to working with industry leaders in the outdoor space and working with getting more people outside and using public land as the kind of the, the means uh, to get someone outside for the first time or to get someone back into the field if and who hasn't been hunting in a while. Um, so, like I said, I'll talk more about that uh, in a few weeks when we're ready to release the, the whole project. But um, needless to say, I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for public land and 
I I am a, an adult onset hunter and public land is what made it possible for me to develop this huge passion of mine of of hunting. Awesome. Yeah. Andrew, have you have you heard of powder hook yet? Uh actually when when you told me that you were having Ian on, I looked him up. I looked up powder hook and I actually downloaded the app and created a profile to see what it was all about. And it is uh it looks very useful actually. You know, I was genuinely surprised at the ease of the experience when you open it up and it has the the weather stats and all that good stuff on it, it's just like, man, this is actually pretty well thought out. And it's it's definitely um it it's just it makes it really easy. You know, I, I was surprised it, it's such a simple idea, but it's complex at the same time, but it's extremely useful. So I'm looking forward to networking and, and being able to use um to be able to use it this season for more than just waterfowl. You know, when I go up turkey hunting, when I go elk hunting, you know, I'm gonna use it. So I'm excited about yeah, it. It's it's pretty cool. My my favorite thing is you know uh, using Onyx and uh, like some base map stuff. It, it's the public lands don't pop out at you as much yeah. as they do on powder on powder hooks map. That's my favorite thing. Like that's how you find uh, it. It's very clear, I and mean, you can see where yeah. the public land is. I don't know. So. But of course, all right. Uh, so kind of to introduce all of this, I wanted to bring up what I kind of call the parable. And I think, I hope that that's the right, uh, the right kind of word, but hunting numbers are declining. And at the same time, overcrowding is becoming more prevalent through the, the loss of huntable land. Um, the figures, which a lot of people still refuse to acknowledge and uh, continuing like the denial of facts and rejections of plausible evidence-backed truths, kind of like politics. Uh, and I'm just going off of, you know, the hunting numbers that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service reports and then all that other stuff. But I think the reasons that you're seeing uh, more people on your particular marsh uh, is because of one, the decrease in public land, two, the decrease in the newer hunter's ability to find and obtain private land permission. Um, I think those things both at the same time kind of lead to this weird false um, image of, Oh my gosh, we have more hunters now than we've ever had at the same time. We also <laughs> are using more public land than we ever have just due to the amount of access that there is out there. Um, Ian, what do you think of that? I think that's a very accurate statement across the board. Um, there's a lot of research and a lot of thought behind why there is a decline. Um, and you can interpret that a few different ways, but simply put, there's no way to interpret the fact that public land and access to public land for outdoor recreation, specifically hunting, is in fact on the decline. And that can and has been tied to I mean, it creates a, a, a direct correlation to uh, the loss in or the decline in hunter participation. Um, so it, it's a very interesting uh, scenario that it paints is that you have a voice somewhere that says, hey, we're losing hunters, which of course has its terrible second and third order effects. Um, but in conjunction with that, when you actually go to a marsh, you feel like you're at, we're actually gaining hunters and it's kind of limiting or, or maybe hindering your experience. Um, and so it creates a, it's like a dichotomy 
Um, but the fact remains that we're, we're losing numbers in terms of acreage for where you can hunt. And we're losing numbers in terms of people who are hunting. And both of those things need to be addressed immediately. Yeah. Andrew, obviously there's a couple, probably uh, some experiences that you've had that have kind of proven this parable and the reason that we're having this conversation. I was just going to ask you if, uh, you know, uh, one of the guys in the group, uh, Alex Tanari, he asked, you know, hey, what bad public land experiences uh, have we had? And I figured you should start us off. All right. One of the one of the big ones that sticks out to me um, when I was kind of brainstorming, thinking about it, and it's it was a it was kind of a brief experience, but it was a prominent one at the same time. You know, we were set up in this it, it was a popular spot to hunt in the area and uh it was out on the columbia <clears throat> and uh we come out there and realize that the water is a lot lower than what we had anticipated and, the, and what it was just the day before um because we actually live um where we're at it's the, the mcnary dam is right next to us so they can obviously regulate the water level drastically if they have to let water through. So we come in that morning in the water. I mean, it's almost like a mud flat in this, in this cove. So we're forced to hunt a spot that we don't usually hunt on this cove. And uh, we're all set up and it's just soupy, muddy, ankle deep water. <clears throat> and uh, we're set up and 10 minutes before shooting light, we hear just dogs barking and people ranting and raving, you know, like, these big bellowing duck hunter voices just walking through the cattails across the cove here. And they're acting like they're going to walk to the, the main spot that we planned on hunting, but then they get down there and realize that, Oh, the water's low. So they literally, we're, we have birds flying all over the place. They're literally walking 15, 20 yards out in front of us or out in front of our decoys, our furthest decoy. <clears throat> and it was, just you know you go out there and you already deal with the hiccups of getting out there and then having to make adjustments to the situation and you're already kind of on edge because you're wondering okay is this actually going to work and then for these guys to come walking out there and this in particular party i i mean they were seasoned hunters i mean we're talking 20 30 years experience they're just walking right past our decoy spread just complete disrespect and acknowledge the fact that we were right there um and to <laughs> to rub some salt on the wound they start shooting at the birds that are uh they don't even have their decoy set up and then they start shooting at the birds that are decoying our spread as they're out in their decoys they're shooting at our birds and we're sitting there trying to decoy birds so it's just that's that was probably the the most prominent one that stuck out to me just because it was so blatant and so negative um and uh like i said these these weren't 15 year old kids that didn't know any better you know what i mean these yeah. were seasoned these were seasoned waterfowlers that should have known better they should have gotten out there sooner i don't know if uh they got b to their plan a and this was their plan b uh i was i, I assumed that that's what happened was this was just a backup plan and they ended up just showing up right before shooting light because it's, it is kind of a walk in where we were, if you don't have a boat and with them being older guys, I'm sure they took forever to walk out there, <clears throat> Yeah, but it's, it, yeah, it was just, 
we ended up doing fine. Eventually, I mean, they didn't stick around, but maybe 45 minutes to an hour, and then they were out of there. But it was just, it was the blatancy behind what they were doing to us. It was just like, are you serious? Like, is it, are you really doing this right now? And uh, it took everything in all of us to just keep our cool and not let the situation escalate. So I was yeah. going to, I was going to wait to, to say like my, what my plan C is. I usually have a plan A and then I've always got a plan B. Uh, and then plan C is usually asking the people that are at my plan B if, hey, do you mind if I hunt? I will take some pictures for you um, and we can we can we can add uh, more you know decoys and I'll, I'll be really cool. I promise. That's usually my my plan C is asking the people at plan B if I can hunt with them. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, Ian, what about you, man? I've only had one really negative experience on public land with that involves other hunters. Um, and it wasn't waterfowl related. Sorry. That's uh, but it was, uh, the day before the opening day of deer season. And I had spent quite a bit of time scouting a particular piece of land. And I felt pretty confident in it. And the night before I was coming back after like kind of a final setting my ducks in a row, I'm ready for tomorrow. And I bumped into a, a gentleman and we talked for a while and he said, yeah, I try to come out here maybe once every year or two years. I really like hunting here. Where are you going to hunt? And so I kind of outlined, hey, this is what I know. Um, this is what I'm trying to accomplish here. And last year, because I had um, a mule deer tag, uh, I wasn't looking to harvest a whitetail buck. Uh, in Kansas, you can only harvest one antlered deer a year. So since I had kind of a... I'll go as far as to say coveted mule deer tag. I was just looking to harvest a white-tailed doe. Um, anyway, so I, I made that very clear. I thought that was kind of like a, a good relationship thing since we didn't know each other. So, yeah, you know, upfront honesty, this is what I'm looking to accomplish. And I'm going to go sit over here tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. And he looked over and he said, yeah, I'm going to go sit over there at 5 a.m. Um, completely opposite side of the field. I was like, oh, that's perfect. Anyway, fast forward to the next morning. I get set up and the gentleman walks directly in front of me and he sets up, you know, maybe 50 yards away. And it was, I mean, there's, I had to move um, because there's no way that I could safely hunt without the risk of a bullet being somewhere close to him. So that was really frustrating for me, um, especially because we had had the conversation the night before and I thought it was really amicable. And it was, you know, I had, told him what I'd seen that year, that fall, as I'd been scouting. Um, and sure enough, I get up and move and I never have a shot opportunity that day. And right at sunrise, um, he shot a deer and walked out of there. So that was a, that was a pretty negative experience for me that left me rather salty. Um, but on that note, I do want to, I do want to get this out there that I think in a way that was kind of like a, a rite of passage for me. Um, because I think that's just a very real aspect of public land hunting and you have to be mentally prepared for that. Uh, we need to be stewards of the land and the resource and the relationships. And so I think a negative experience like that, if anything, it's only helped me in the way that I interact with people and talk about public land moving forward to, you know, case in point being today, this podcast. Um, it's just, it's something that we need to talk about. We need to talk about it with other people, whether they've hunted for 50 years or they're just getting into hunting. We need to have those conversations 
um, so that hopefully we can see a shift in, in that kind of interpersonal relationship out in the field in the future. I think too often when we talk about these experiences, it comes off like we are bitching. You know what I mean? It comes off like we're complaining about it and all this other stuff, but it's really kind of just bringing it to the forefront of the rhetoric of saying, Hey, man, it is not cool. I don't like, I don't care. Um, you know, what your particular circumstances, if you're going to go behind and, you know, basically do bad by what we're really trying to accomplish out here. Um, it, having a conversation about, uh, you know, hey, you mind if I hunt with you or, hey, listen, dude, I was up all night with my with my wife and my newborn baby and uh, I decided to sleep in or not sleep in. The reason I'm, I'm late to this marsh right now is because I helped my wife change a blowout diaper, um, you know, that took me an extra 15 minutes to get out of the garage. And, it, you know, we're all, we're all, we have so much more in common uh, with each other than all the people that are sleeping in their beds, you know, 10, 15 miles away. And I don't know why we do this to ourselves. Um, like at any rate. So that, so that brings, the- yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I think the worst part about it is someone can have a bad experience and that someone can be a brand new hunter and that completely sets the stage and the tone for the way they hunt from here on out or the fact that that maybe they don't hunt. Right. And a lot of us, I think, lose sight of ultimately the bigger picture of just having a great day outside and understanding second and third order effects. Andrew, how long have you been hunting? Oh, let's see. I'm 29 now. Um, well, I've been hunting since I was probably 10, 12 years old. I've been waterfowl hunting for since 2007, probably. So 15, 12 years. Would that be yeah. 12 years? Um, go ahead. No, no, it's fine. Um, go ahead. I, I started out uh, big game hunting with my dad and my grandpa. You know, we'd we're big meat hunters. We'd go up and shoot cow elk, um, spikes, you know, we'd get a over the counter second season spike tag. Um, never, I was never really big into deer hunting. Um, but I, bird hunting, I started out just, I started out pheasant hunting. We got lots of pheasants out here in Eastern Oregon. And, uh, uh, it was just, uh, it's one of those things where you just, as a kid, you know, compared to elk hunting, uh, when you're walking around upland hunting, you can just, pretty much be a kid you know as long as you listen to your you know your met your dad or your grandpa or whoever is taking you and you you know stay behind the firing line you just kind of pay attention to the things that you learned in hunter safety um then you can just have a good time you, know, you don't have to be quiet you can kind of tromp around and then you might flush up a pheasant you know so that's the, that's where my love for for wing shooting started was just that mean cackle coming out of the cattails or or, or the tall grass and watching the pheasant go down and the dog bring it back. I mean, that's really what started the fire in me for feathers. Um, and I would definitely consider myself more of a bird hunter nowadays than anything else. <clears throat> it's one of those things um, to where I look at it kind of like a, an MMA fighter. You know, they all have their ass, their, their, their avenues of expertise. And we, as we can all be uh, efficient hunters, but some of us just are better at certain things, just like certain fighters are better at certain things. You know what I mean? So, but yeah, 
12, 15 years solid. I've been, uh, I've been going at it. So I think uh, this- one for, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say the rest is history after that. <laughs> I think uh, one interesting thing is, uh, you know, you were like, you were talking about the different styles. There's different public land etiquettes amongst big game, whitetail, um, waterfowl hunting and fishing. And they, it not, they're not all the same nuance. They're not. Uh, and so I think if, if you're just trying out waterfowl, you might, you know, as a deer hunter go, oh, okay, well, there's that dude. Uh, this place is burnt. Uh, I'm out. You know what I mean? Or, okay, this place is burnt. Um, or you're not just not understanding that you can hunt, you know, 500 yards away from somebody, as long as you're being respectful and like taking turns or whatever it is that you're doing. So that's a, that's an interesting thing. And I'm, I'm sure that, you know, your first negative public land experience in waterfowl hunting was probably lessened. Uh, the blow of it was lessened because, you know, you've done some, you've probably had a couple negative experiences, uh, in another hunting realm. Yeah. Uh, just, I mean, when it comes to big game hunting, you know, you got the guys, you, you'll be out spending hours walking around looking for something. And then all of a sudden you just hear a motorized vehicle come cruising up and they don't see you, but they just cruise right by you. And you, you just stand there for the next five, 10 minutes. Like, well, what do I do now? These guys just came ripping through here. You know what I mean? So that those are the, that's, Right. That's kind of the, the core behind most of my public land experiences as far as in the mountains, big game hunting is just kind of people just pushing their way around and not really having any regard to anybody else around them, whether it's motorized vehicles or whether they're on foot or what have you. It's just just the inconsideration to the uh, anybody else around you. Okay. When it comes to, I think the biggest shouldn't uh, in the marsh uh, is crowding. Um, and that's setting up too close to somebody. Uh, and there's a lot of factors that go into, uh, how close is something. And, uh, you know, when you show up to the marsh and you see somebody's headlamp, uh, what are some of your factors of consideration? Uh, is that one for me? Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, so if I see headlamps, I usually try and, you know, first I'll, I'll count the rigs. I'll see how many people are out there. And, and in this area, I kind of have a good idea of, of who drives what and who hunts with who, um, especially for certain areas. And uh, I'll go out to the, because one of the big spots that has a high tendency of being overcrowded around here, um, there's a big giant cove. And then around that cove is a, a smaller one. And that's where the, that's like the money cove, because that's further out towards the river <clears throat> and uh so if i see uh, my first choice if i'm gonna hunt there or not is how many vehicles are there and if there's more vehicles than i i mean if there's anywhere between six seven eight vehicles there then i'm just gonna go find a plan b you know and uh but if i walk out if i think that these guys are hunting with these guys and i'm only looking at two or three parties out here then i'll get an idea of where they're at and um, talk to my buddies, or if I'm by myself, I'll just kind of uh, chew it over, see, you know, just trying to play my options as far as what the weather's like and if it's even worth going any of these other spots in the cove. And if not, I'll go to plan B. But usually, usually I don't just kind of walk out there and just find a spot. If I think that it's 
if I think that there's people out there and hunting the situation that I had planned on hunting, then in the, I mean, in this area, there's, there's, there's plenty of other spots to go. They might not be as, there might not be as many birds using them, but it'll cut back on the negative experience for the day. You know what I mean? I'd rather just go and shoot two or three birds here by myself than um, try and come up in there and just shoot no birds because everybody else is shooting or calling or what have you. You know what I mean? So usually my decision for a spot is made up in the parking lot. I think uh, Andrew and I have very similar tendencies in this regard. Um, go to the parking lot. That's step one. Uh, look at how many vehicles are there. And then if it's a gamble, then I just head in. Uh, and then I start looking for the headlamps. And from that point, I look for, I try and gauge as best as I can, you know, distance and what I think is respectable. Um, and in my opinion, it's that there's no possible way that we could end up shooting at the same thing at the same time and that no one could possibly get um, injured or there's any risk there. So um, I'm also a really like, a, you know, if, if I'm outside, I'm having it's it's a, it's already a win. So I actually tend to not get too caught up in the whole crowded thing. Um, I mean, if it's I'm sure there's people out there probably both of you um, that you would see it. There's a number of cars in the parking lot and that's like your hard, no hard pass. Um, but for me, it's a, I'm going to go take a look for myself and I'm going to gauge off the headlamps. Um, and with that being said, I using the headlamp method, uh, I'll look out in the marsh and I'll try and I'll figure out if there is a way for me to maneuver to what I think might be a acceptable spot for success as long as I'm not going to be crossing paths with anybody or like unintentionally bumping into them or their spread or their setup in the dark of the night, then I'll go for it. But if there's a chance that I am going to mess something up for someone else, I'll bail and, and go somewhere else. But uh, in the Midwest and in Kansas, it does get pretty tough because your access points um, are, are fairly limited. So at some point, even though it looks like the parking lot's crowded, that's just almost the nature of beast in a lot of cases. Yeah, I I don't necessarily, I would not um, show up someplace uh, on most hunts and see, you know, five trucks in the parking lot and say, okay, I'm not, it's not going to happen today. Usually during my, my scout, I consider, okay, how many different spots are there to hunt out here? And I kind of rank and file them. Uh, you know, this is the best spot. This is the second best spot. This is the third spot, uh, according to, to that day's scout. And then I say, well, okay, kind of think about it. If somebody's over there, that spot's probably no, you know what I mean? Um, kind of creates this, uh, really dynamic kind of ABC, A, you know, D is only good if A and B aren't there. Um, but like I said, I'm, <laughs> I, I really am a big proponent behind, uh, wiggling in on someone's hunting experience um, or just inviting them uh, the same. I probably five or six times last year, um, I ended up having, you know, the person that showed up and looked all downtrodden because uh, I had their spot. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I kind of judged and said, eh, they look like an okay guy. Um, uh, you want to hunt here, you know, after giving them 30 minutes to go find a new spot. Um, but another thing that uh, is super, I think, 
uh, important or like something that I learned that's helpful is if you put in a good, a good scout and somebody is about 200 yards off of that good scout. Um, and you're like, Hey man, this is where you need to be. Uh, a lot of times that is not met well, um, to with somebody at you know three thirty in the morning that's you know a hardcore duck hunter because they're there at three thirty in the morning and you're telling them hey man you're about two hundred fifty yards off where you need to be you know they say oh no this is good and I said well I was here yesterday um, and then the the night before and uh, I'm telling you like this scout you want to be over here I'm gonna hunt over there would you like to hunt with me and pulling them that way instead of uh, you showing up and on their hunt, basically offering them a better hunt. Um, because you wouldn't do well if you were just 250 yards away from them, right where they wanted to be. And plus you don't want to be that guy anyways. But yeah, um, that kind of leads me into the second thing. Uh, I very rarely, uh, get beat to my spots. And when I do, it's usually somebody breaking a rule or being way more hardcore by like camping or setting their decoys out at the night before, um, something of that nature. I just have any of you experienced, you know, one of those instances. I have, um, in, in Kansas, that's, I think that can become particularly tough, uh, the way the regulations read and interpreting what really is too early. Uh, in terms of like legally speaking and that makes it i mean it, it makes it tough either way you want to split the coin but um for me going out and running into folks like that it, it is frustrating uh but at the same time and not to sound like i'm on a high horse here uh but at the same time this is my biggest passion in the world and the fact that it can be taken away by having an infraction like that, by breaking the law, um, is enough. I mean, that's just frightening enough for me to never, ever, ever, ever mess with it. I mean, it's, it's just not worth it to me. So if somebody beats me, um, because of something like that, I mean, it is what it is. It's unfortunate that that exists. And I think it's a good idea to have the conversation, uh, with someone, if you can, in the marsh or in the parking lot about that, uh, friendly, of course. But in a lot of times I found in that regard and for any other kind of uh, rule or regulation or law issue that you identify um, is that a lot of times people just don't know or don't understand because a lot of these regulations are really difficult to read and interpret. I mean, it's, it's written by a lawyer pertaining to a natural resource and it probably hasn't been updated in 25 years. And so unless you've had a, a really spot on mentor, um, there's a good chance that a lot of people that are doing the wrong thing don't even realize it. So it kind of ties back into what we talked about at the very beginning of the episode of talking with people and establishing a good relationship right off the bat when you run into somebody in the marsh or in the field or wherever else. Um, so yeah, that's my two cents on obeying the laws and especially in the Midwest folks camping out or showing up super early. Andrew, you have any of those kind of laws? Uh, yeah, we have a lot of the, the property that is uh accessible along the river is run by the corps of engineers and uh i don't know if you've ever dealt with the corps but it's it's very their regulations their rules their guidelines they're kind of hard to access i mean yeah it's on their website but 
their website's not well maintained and you never know really how to find the exact place where you're at. Um, but it's, you know, there's no set camping, no campfires. Um, in Oregon, you can't set up your decoys until 4 a.m. Um, 4 a.m. Yeah, 4 a.m. You can't have your decoys in the water until 4 o'clock in the morning. I wonder, um, what does that stop? Um, because I, I, there's a lot of times I'm there at like 3.30. You know what I'm saying? I wonder what not being able to set your decoy stops up. Because the guy, you're still going to be there, right? You still get there before that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, That's an interesting Well, to play deal. devil's advocate, I, I, for one, appreciate that. Now, I may... No, not necessarily agree with a time here or there, uh, but the fact that you guys have that actually outlined in your regulation, I think that's incredible because it it's just one more thing that makes it easier for you, the hunter, to understand. Okay, this is this is what I need to do to do this ethically, uh, to do this legally. Too easy. Uh, whereas in our case, it's like Ben says, you know, we show up at three thirty. Is that right or wrong? I mean, it 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 becomes a gray area, and that just leads to a lot of a lot of problems down the road for everybody involved. I'm a big fan of things being outlined uh, 30 minutes before sunrise. Here's the sunrise table that we're going to use to give you the ticket. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Don't use your iPhone. Don't use weather underground. This is the ticket. Like this is the time. Like this is sunrise. Add four minutes for every 12 miles or whatever it is. Um, and having that all laid out for you. But that's so interesting. Uh it's 4.30. I just find that weird. Um, that all that would do is kind of like rush my thing where I like to get out there, get my decoys out, uh, tinker with them for, you know, three hours while I'm drinking my coffee uh, and then BSing with the guys. Um, but go ahead. I'm sorry, Andrew. No, no worries, Ben. Um, but yeah, so that that's the start of it. You know, you can't have your decoys in the water till four. I mean, there's people that kind of push that, you know, half hour here, 45 minutes there. They'll just kind of just start, start tossing them out. But everybody that I'm usually around in, in some of these spots, um, they know that, you know, you're not supposed to have your decoys in the water. And it's funny because like some old timers, uh, a guy that I used to hunt with, uh, he guided down here on the Columbia River for about 20, 25 years. And he's comes from a line of market hunters out of Illinois. And um, he, he said that he used to come up and he said, if people had their decoys in the water, because um, a lot of times back then they would just set their decoys in the water and then leave and then make it look like somebody was there. He said he would just cut their decoy lines. I mean, it's back, back, back in the battle hunting days, you know? Yeah. Um, it's it's nothing I would do, but I, he would tell those old those old war stories out out in the marsh, and I would I couldn't do anything but just laugh at him. But uh, back to the subject, uh, there's out on the river. There's um, there's a lot of spots that are run by Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, um, and you can't you you can go out there at any point uh, in the night, but you can't have a tent. You can't you know there's just no camping. You like so if you want to go sit in the duck blind with your little buddy heater, that's fine. Um, but, and then you got a couple uh, national refuges out here that you can't even go through the front gate until an hour and a half before shooting time. So there's some pretty, pretty strict time regulations on some of these spots in, in the area that I hunt. So, I mean, as far as people getting in there, if, if somebody wants to go out to some of these honey holes and sleep throughout the night i've done it i mean i've slept on the ground in my waders to hold down a spot for three or four guys the next day and now i'm the guy that has somebody do that for me 
You know what yeah. I mean? So um, it's just one of those things to where, uh, as long as everybody knows that that's how it's supposed to be, then it is what it is. But we usually, we don't have any issues with people camping. I mean, there are people that come from out of town that, that kind of push those limits or they're not aware of them. But for the most part, I don't have too many negative experiences with people uh, just camping or being obnoxious in that sense. Yeah. You were talking about cutting uh, cutting the guy's decoys lines. Uh, I, I was real close to doing that. I, I walked down to the marsh. I had my spot all picked out. I, I knew where I was going uh, and me and my buddy, I see a group of ducks sitting there. I'm like, Oh man, like I don't really want to flush, you know, five dozen ducks. Maybe we'll, yeah. <laughs> maybe we'll wait. Uh, maybe we'll wait and, uh, you know, get on them. I don't, I don't know. But I, we stood there for about, oh, 10, 15 minutes. And I was like, those are, those are freaking decoys. Uh, and I walked over there and nobody's there. And I was like, well, this is right where I want to hunt. And there's nobody here, but their stuff's here. And so my buddy was like, well, let's just pile up all their decoys and, um, you know, take them a hundred yards up the way so that they'll see where they're at. And I said, no, I, I, and then obviously he's also said, well, we could also just take them too. And I said, no, <laughs> I said, no. Uh, all right, let's, let's see what the deal is. And so they came in, I said, Hey man, we beat you here. Uh, obviously you beat us here at some point. Uh, do you want to just hunt together? <laughs> and uh, they were, they were, pretty cool and that was what turned out to be nice it was a uh, a grandfather and his grandson it was like his grandson's like second or third hunt so it was uh he's like yeah we came down here and set these out so we'd have a little bit easier you know morning and i don't get to do this often and so that was one of the times where it was like okay yeah uh, he wasn't doing the right thing but he was you know the spirit was there so but yeah, um, I think that kind of takes up crowding and obeying the laws. I, I, I just did want to tell like one thing that super irritates me. Um, if somebody, tell me how you'd react to this, Ian. Okay. Um, me and my buddy, Austin, we went and we got there super early. We set up. He doesn't get to go out often. And then about half an hour before sunrise, some group of college kids, and I don't mean to be demeaning towards college kids at all. Um, but a group of college kids comes out and they're being all loud as get up. And I said, you know, we shine them and we're like, Hey, we're hunting here. And they set up 150 yards in front of us, 150 yards, maybe 200. Um, and they were just like, Nope, uh, we're just hunting woodies. We'll be out of here real soon. And I was like, uh, yeah, you're like right in front of us. We're going to be, and they're like, Oh, it's fine. Um, and couldn't get them to, to budge. I even called the, uh, the game warden, uh, and the, but that he was half a county over um and you know what happens when you call the game warden you, you both leave um so i don't know how would you have reacted to that ian that's that's tough um had it been me i would have i mean i would have done what you did and then i would have gauged it from a safety perspective and i would have gauged it from a time perspective and basically weighed those risks right so um Assuming safety isn't an issue whatsoever, and then I check the time. And if I had time to move, and there was you know maybe a place to move, I might move. But at the same, see, that's tough. 
but this is what happens. I mean, this stuff happens all the time, right? Like that's hunting. You got to make these split second decisions and whatever happens, you come home like, man, if only I had gone left instead of right, I would have a thousand limits of ducks right now. Uh, yeah. Granted, that's illegal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but my point being, it goes back to what I said earlier. I'm just so happy to like go out and hunt that stuff like that would in fact really frustrate me. But at the end of the day, if there's still a way for me to still safely hunt, I'm going to hunt. And maybe it's going to not be the, the best hunt of the week or the, the month or the season due to, the, you know, how close we are in proximity and all that kind of stuff. But I'm just happy to hunt, man. So uh, not to sound like I'm a mega pushover, but I'm just super happy to get outside. So I guess that's my answer. It's probably not. Maybe that's not a good. I don't know. How's the answer? Was it good enough? Was it? Was it foul, foul front caliber? Answer yeah, yeah. I was, it was something. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, I think it just does. There's so many. The reason I, the only reason I asked you was I wanted to just display that there is literally, there's a hundred ways that you can react to these things. Um, and yeah, we can't, can't help you uh, other than just saying no, you know, be confident in what is going to make the the best outcome for you if that's okay i don't care i'm gonna send i'm gonna send uh number two shot steel uh 150 yards away while i'm shooting these birds you know if that's what makes you comfortable um that's i i don't recommend that um because you don't want to be the guy that you know even though they showed up late and they showed up way too close you're still you're still in charge of uh <laughs> the safety that comes out of your gun. Um, and then the, the other thing too is, is it, no one's going to always positively react to uh, you inviting them over to your spread or um, anything like that. And it's just, there's just no win situations sometimes. And sometimes that it's, you know, going sitting somewhere that you didn't want to sit and maybe you shoot one duck or maybe you shoot, don't shoot any ducks, but um, yeah. Anyway. You know, the other thing too is, for all you know, that day, the way it, the way it, the stars align, nobody's going to see any ducks or everybody limits out in the first five minutes or something in between. Like that's all part of hunting too. What, where you move to, where you go, all that stuff. I mean, it's all up in there. That's what makes it so tough is making those decisions on how do I, you know, how do I work with other people in the marsh? Um, and how do I predict what a wild animal is going to do? I mean, the, the, it's, it's a wild animal. So, yeah. Anyhow. All right. So we've talked about crowding. We've talked about obeying the laws, about setting up, uh, talking about a little bit about showing up late uh, or showing up too early. Um, before we kind of go back down through anymore, I do, I want you guys, I want to get you guys' reaction on this, what I'm about to say. I think that if you walk into the marsh with a 1 million or 1,000, um, what do you call it? Candle. I can't, I can't remember how you, you a super freaking bright light and just an absolute floodlight. <laughs> uh, I think that you're a jerk. Um, and it comes on, it comes on to, it's the same, same thing, right? Um, 
getting in with the smallest amount of impact uh, on everybody else's hunt. Uh, there's dudes that walk through there with freaking Batman's uh, Batman light. You know what I mean? <laughs> and you can see them from halfway across the dang lake. And it's the same thing with airboats. You get some dude, he comes, you know, slipping in with his boat with just his regular outboard, um, kicks up, you know, hundred birds. And then they all pop back down. Maybe, you know, 15, 20 minutes later, about, Two, three hundred yards away. You get a guy that comes in slinging his mud motor. Uh, you don't see those birds again. You get a guy uh, come in with his airboat. Those birds are halfway down the dang flyway before shooting light. <laughs> I was going to say, they, they push back into migration when those airboats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a significant emotional event. Um, and where I'm like the guy that. Okay, I judge the moon and I'm like, all right, hey, I can see I'm getting out there. Like, I know where I'm going. Um, <laughs> or I use a red lens. Uh, just, I just, people always bug me when I just see them walking across, straight across the marsh uh, with a million candle watts coming out of their head. And it's like, do you really need that? It's a freaking, you know, waxing crescent right now at like 70%. Like, I, I'm cooking my breakfast right now without a light source. I, I just don't understand it. What's your reactions, gentlemen? Go. Um, for me, I'm pretty confident in uh, walking in with no light. To be completely honest, the the spots that I hunt, I and mean, as long as the moon the moon phase is permitting, and I can at least see somewhat in front of me. But a lot of people would be surprised what your eyes are able to adjust to. You know, if you let them be in the dark, they will adjust, and you'll be able to see enough to walk around. Um, a lot of times I'll put a little light on my dog or something like that to keep a, keep an eye on him. But other than that, I mean, I'll walk through the, through these coves to the spot and I'll scare the hell out of some of these hunters because they won't even know we're coming through. You know, we throw our, our decoys up on our little, our little boats and then we drag them through and, um, they don't even hear us coming. Unless, you know, we have to click our light on to, to find something in our pockets or look in the boat or something like that. But, um, yeah, going into just other people doing that, I just think it's just a complete nuisance. You know, I mean, some people need the light and that is what it is. It is. It's a free country. Use your thousand or a, what is it? Yeah. A million lumen light or whatever. Lumen. That That's can, what it was. Yeah. Lumen. That you can, that you can shoot across the, across the canyon and 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 spotlight elk with um but it's that's just not for me i don't see too many people using them and i i use them on the boat you know when we're coming up to the bank you got to use them to you know shine in the water and so you can see if there's any 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 rocks coming in so i mean spotlights from a boat are completely understandable um but these guys that have these military grade um headlamps on top of their head that it would, you would think it would just burn their hands if they just shined it on them. I just, I don't get it. I mean, I spent 20, 25 bucks on a headlamp and I'm happy. 70 lumens. I, I don't even care. <laughs> yeah. I'll be, I'll be truthful here. Um, you two gentlemen have talked about and thought about light bulbs in the marsh more than I've ever considered like in my entire life at all. <laughs> um, as far as personal preference goes, yeah, I, I'll, I'll bring a red lens with me, but that's typically to like try and find something deep in my bag. Um, but I'm usually so caught up in second guessing myself on will there actually be ducks here today? And like, 
is my decoy facing the right direction? Um, all that kind of stuff that I'm usually too distracted to get uh, bent out of shape about other flashlights. But that being said, I know what you mean and I have seen it. And, uh, but I'll go with, go with, uh, that idea that, you know, to each their own, right? So if you need a big light, so be it. Um, again, man, I'm just so happy to be outside and be hunting that I'm just going to go hunt and you do you. The happy hunter over here. Um, yeah, when it comes to safety, totally get it. If you're, if you're coming in with your boat, like I don't want you to be skimping out and run into me and my decoy because you didn't have enough light. Uh, that's of course. Um, but yeah, don't be, don't be shining the bat signal, uh, back into every single cove. It's just unnecessary, I think. Um, okay. Talked about flashlights and mud motors, airboats. Um, I actually, I don't care. They're great for, I think, safety things and um, the, the game wardens and um, rescue people for, you know, airboats. You know, that's great. Um, all that stuff's good. But I think that hunting uh in most deep waters where a you know a mud motor or a regular outboard uh is navigable i think you should outlaw airboard airboats because i think it's uh i think it's unsafe um having been zoomed past um because i wasn't using my my headlamp obviously a uh, an airboat came ripping up towards me and my buddies once uh and they just blow birds out and they just let you get anywhere you want. You can literally freaking anywhere you want. And I don't know if that's a healthy thing. I think it should be a little bit harder to get to some places. Now, in the case of maybe, you know, um, disabled or handicapped uh, persons, that's fine. Sure. It should be just like a crossbow. Um, but yeah. These you hunt ducks with crossbows? No, oh, no. No. <laughs> Well, not, uh, not that I talk about on this podcast. Um, <laughs> I, it's probably a legal means of take. Yeah, crossbows are illegal in Oregon. Are they? So we, yeah. Period or just yeah. for duck? No, I'm pretty sure they're illegal. Period. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, we're it's uh, we're we're a pretty blue state over here, so we're kind of run by the masses on the west side of the state, which yeah. isn't a, a negative thing all the time, but. Sometimes they try and put their nose in a lot of our outdoors in the business of the outdoors that they really don't have. A, yeah. What do you, Ian, uh, we're called hook and bullet. What's, uh, what's the other one called? Some bag and bag and, uh, I don't bag and almonds. I can't remember what the, like, what's it called? You got hook and bullet and then you got, what is the other one? Nuts and berries. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's like backpackers <laughs> and, uh, you know, bird watchers. Um, yeah. Which you, which you, and nothing against those guys need them too. Um, better than the, the city slickers playing their video games all day. Um, but, uh, I imagine Andrew that you have to deal with quite a bit of, um, the non-traditional, um, hunting outdoorsmen, uh, in Oregon. Yeah. See, the thing about Oregon, and I and I could kind of speak towards Washington too, is um, it we're really divided in half. Both Oregon and Washington, Eastern Washington and Oregon are very similar in a lot of um, aspects, and Eastern Washington or Western Washington, Western Oregon are 
they're those the western sides of these two states are what make us blue if that makes sense yeah yeah um if you look at you know uh, a county to county map we're talking maybe six or seven counties in in the state of oregon that are blue everybody else is red but the fact that all of the populace is in those counties they're the ones that get to make the decisions most of the decisions i should say but it's uh out here in Eastern Oregon, it's kind of a no man's land for some of those guys. You know what I mean? Like they just think we're a bunch of deer killing cowboys out here, which that's not really how it is. I mean, there's definitely ranches and cowboys and stuff over here, but like myself, I'm not a cowboy. I just like to shoot birds. Um, I grew up in rural Oregon and it's just, it's kind of a place they, they do come over here, you know, especially to the, the national refuges that are, uh, easy to um easy to research and kind of scout on the internet you know they can get a good idea and maybe they make a trip over and they hunt for a day or two and they're from the willamette valley and then they have a good hunt and then they just start coming every year you know we definitely see portland hunters <clears throat> in our area we just call we we just categorize them as portland hunters even though they might not live in portland they might not live or they might live just somewhere close to Portland, but we call them Portland hunters just as a genre and they're easy to spot. They're kind of just their equipment. And he might run like a weird breed dog. That's not necessarily made for the cockleburs and all the stuff that we have around here. Um, but it's not that bad. I mean, even I've, I've talked to a lot of guys that come from the West side of the state and I've pointed them in the right direction too to find some birds you know they got a guy i met a guy a couple years back he he him and his son had come over the weekend following thanksgiving and they were spending three or four days over here and uh they were they had planned on just hunting this one refuge and uh, it had been dry um the week or two leading up there it had really been hunted because we had a nice push of birds at the beginning of november and um he he said they were just having troubles finding birds. So, you know, I, I just um, selflessly just pointed him right to the spot that, uh, that we had been hunting down on the river, gave him directions and um, gave him my phone number if he had any issues. And uh, I eventually that following Monday or Tuesday after he had got home, he sent me a picture of him and his son and they had actually shot like 12 or 13 birds between the two of them. Which just, it made me feel good because, you know, that, that hunt probably, uh, it, it probably made their trip. You know, they, they made memories between him and his dad that, you know, that I was able to kind of help influence. They would have had, they would have made memories either way, but memories in the duck blind with birds. I mean, we all got to admit those are a little bit sweeter than not having birds. Yeah. That's why we do it. That's why we do it. You know what I mean? So I don't know. It's just little things like that. You know, I, I, they're not my ducks. You know what I mean? They, 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 all this is public land, man. It's public. People get so caught up and like, oh, I don't want to share my spots. And I understand for some of you guys that, that are in landlocked states that don't have big rivers or, or big bodies of water to, to access. I understand honey hole, the, the idea behind honey holes and kind of wanting to keep those to yourself. But it's just, when it comes, I've, there's there's an abundance of water over here, and there's lots lots of waterfowl that migrate through this area. <clears throat> I mean, I'm talking a pivotal 
uh, location for waterfowl as they come down the Pacific Flyway. And so, if me sacrificing a day to hunt means pointing these guys in the right direction, then so be it. And I don't even think I sacrificed a day to hunt that day. I think I had already had plans, but I had been hunting that spot and was doing good a couple days prior. So I just told him to go there. I was like, yeah, we've been over here and he, they showed up and I ended up getting that picture a few days later. And he said he was, uh, he just showed a lot of uh, genuine appreciation for it. So I'm assuming that I'll probably run into him and his son, or maybe just his son down the road. Who knows? Yeah. That brings me to another thing too, is, is if I'm ever, if I'm ever getting in, getting out of my truck at the same time that a, uh, somebody else is, I always, you know, go up, have the conversation with them while my buddies are, uh, you know, trying to get the stuff out of the truck, which does two things, right? Maybe it slows them down a little bit while my guys are still getting ready. Um, and that's selfish. Um, but the other thing too is, is it's way better to, you know, figure out a plan um, that is conducive to both of you and then getting each other's number. And uh, that way you can kind of feel like uh, you can get a little bit of teamwork going on out there. And especially if you show them that you're willing to, Hey man, uh, you know, what are you seeing? We're, you know, we've got birds in the spread already. Um, or if like, if you see a sailor uh, go down and uh, you, I, I've done this, I saw a guy, um, he, he clipped one. It came floating over near me. Uh, I finished it off for him. I told him, Hey man, uh, I got you. I got your duck over here. <laughs> Um, and that's kind of an interesting gray area, uh, legally when you think about it. Um, but he, uh, counted towards his bag, came, picked it up, um, later and, and actually kind of screwed me out of a duck later in the day. Um, but it's always better to be on the same team with the people that are sharing the marsh with you and, uh, just positive experiences. Um, you know, we're sitting at like 60 minutes here and we are still, we're, I think we I think we'll just mention some of these things and briefly talk about the rest of the the talking points that we came up with um uh so that we're not sitting here for you know 90 minutes um talking about this but so we've talked about crowding we've talked about obeying your laws uh we haven't talked about shooting swinging birds um and I think that's one really important one that a new guy might not pick up because he's just really hungry uh for birds um but if you're out there in the marsh and you are, if somebody's working birds, you can tell. Uh, and if they get close to you, obviously it goes into sky busting and, and all that stuff. But uh, Ian, uh, you ever had any issues with swinging birds or ever even thought about it before? Honestly, no. Um, and I think what I've learned throughout the duration of recording this is that you two have had like way more terrible experiences than I have. So I was probably not the best person to call for the podcast. <laughs> um, I, like I've had like one or two, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but as far as swinging birds and, and somebody, you know, taking advantage of someone else working ducks and that kind of thing. Um, there's a good chance it hasn't been a problem for me because I'm terrible at calling and my spreads make no sense. So maybe that's part of it. Um, but from a, you know, outside looking in to me, that's just a kind of like a golden rule thing. Right. Well, um, I guess it'd be like this, right? So you're out there hunting a doe, right? Um, and you see a guy, 
and you just so happen to know where he's hunting and you see a, a buck working his way. Like, are you going to shoot your doe while that dude's buck is like working in uh, at 60 yards? Oh, that's a very good metaphor. One that makes way more sense to me. Um, <laughs> I, I love the waterfowl hunt, but I probably spent more time big game hunting. Um, man, that's tough. Um, oh, that's really tough. Yeah, it, and because I'm, it comes I'm, down I'm, to like I'm a getting recorded. Thing. So yeah, yeah, I'm getting recorded. So it's like, do I? How do I answer this so not the whole foul front community doesn't just despise me to my core? <laughs> Or a do, game where calls me one or the yeah, other. Do you shoot yeah. that? Uh, do you shoot that that doe? You know what I mean, a- Andrew. What about you, man? Like, what's your rules? Um, I, I see. I've I've hunted waterfowl for a long time. I know how to read it when they're in the air. I know when to call it to them. I know what call they want to hear in certain situations. I know when they don't want to hear the call. Um, so going back to uh, just the crowding thing and, and when you are hunting around other people and I I'm, I'm all for letting a guy work birds. If he's got half a dozen, three, four, a single work in his spread, I'll let him work. But as soon as those birds show any interest in me, I'm hammering, I'm, I'm calling at him. I'm pushing on those birds. But if, if they're swinging over me because they're looking at him, I'm not shooting at those birds. Even if it's a 40 yard shot, I'm not taking that shot. I would yeah. like to see if that I would, I would like to see if that guy can finish those birds, but as soon as they peel off because he messes something up. Uh, see, we don't have mojos here. All of our uh, our wing decoys have to be um, pulled by a string. So if he's flapping that thing at the wrong at the wrong time and he flares them, or if his dog's moving and he flares them, I'm hammering. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna finish those birds. Uh, I would at, at least attempt to. I can't say it happens every time, but. Um, I, you just got to read the birds. If, if they're not your birds, if they're watching the other person, let them try and finish them. Don't be greedy. It's just a duck, you know? Yeah. So that's where I'm at with it. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to try and reach out and take that 40, 45, 50 yard shot on birds that I'll probably just cripple anyways, you know? Yeah. I would like to say that as we get through the duration of this podcast, something that's really stood out to me is when we talk public land hunting etiquette, I think it is so much more prevalent in the waterfowl community. And when we think about it, I mean, where do ducks go? They go to water. And most of the time, water is somehow tied to a piece of public land or that water itself is public. Um, and we have interactions and we do all types of hunting when whether we're interacting with other people. Um, but I think it's just so much more prevalent in, in the waterfowl world. And it makes it really interesting because just in this, this short podcast, we've managed to have like a thousand hypotheticals of, you know, what would you do and what, what would you do? And, um, I think that's a, just something seriously interesting to consider is how it's at face value. You think, okay, just be a good dude or dudette, um, out in the marsh and have a great day. But then th- we kind of get a little bit more deeper into it. And all of a sudden there's just, there's a thousand scenarios to consider. And I think if anything, that tells us how important this conversation is when we are introducing hunting to someone and when we're meeting up with someone in the parking lot or meeting up with them in the marsh, when we're inviting them, Hey, you know, like Ben says, he he'll often, you know, ask if he can jump in or, or invite someone into his spot. Um, and so I think that's the key takeaway today, at least for me, is that uh, 
regardless of the type of hunting you're doing, the, this conversation is just really, really important to have. And for us to all go home and, and think about these things um, and understand the implications. Yeah. Uh, and, and kind of along the lines of uh, that and interaction um, with both the birds and the other, the other hunters uh, out there, one thing I would say, I'm just going to talk to this in, in very short passing. I did talk about this on the Big Honker podcast in the episode that they had me on there. Um, but about calling too much um, and trying to pick dudes' birds off of them and how too much calling can be bad for the entire area, uh, not just you. Um, but yeah, just... Uh, I kind of the last thing that I want to to lead off with here, or excuse me, not lead off. I want to trail off with is that I think one of the the biggest reasons that we have overcrowding of of public hunting uh, lands is because new guys aren't great at getting or at securing private permission. Um, and I kind of always take it on as myself is like I love public land hunting, um, but I try to have several private land places one it's nice to not have to go out there and mix it up with with everybody every weekend and then uh two that's one more spot that somebody who doesn't have the the knowledge and the skill set that i do of finding uh private permission that's one more spot open for him in that public marsh uh, so it kind of alleviates the the pressure that we do have um and i don't know what Andrew, how much, what's your ratio of uh, public to private? Uh, I'd say 80-20, maybe, yeah. depending on the year and the access. Um, well, there's tons of, uh, of agriculture around here. I mean, tons. Yeah. Um, and uh, my girlfriend, her, her family actually owns a 4,000-acre farm. It's got a nice private pond on it. Um, and so I, I definitely have access to go hunt that when need be. Um, I kind of just keep that in my back pocket. Um, just kind of hunt it here and there. It's never anything I'm like, just going to go burn up. You know, it's just that plan that it's usually a plan C, you know, it's like, uh, well, I always have that if, if need be, you know, yeah, but yeah, it's, I, I'd say 80, 20. Um, but I always, for the good spots, I usually just I usually just stick to public, man. Um, unless there's a really a really good barrel burner available on some private property, um, then I'll I'll go do that. But usually, I mean, I would consider myself a thoroughbred public land hunter, dude. Public water, public land. That's yeah. how I do it. That and that leads me into like the last thing I was going to say. So you go check out. I think it's episode number sixteen of the Foul Front podcast. I think it's sixteen. Um, or excuse me, thirty. I got this. I got this. Yeah, I think it's 16. Anyways, we talk about uh, how to get permission and I'll probably be doing another one of those too. But the really important thing that Andrew said there is, is uh, when selecting a mate um, for life, if you haven't yet, um, <laughs> it don't matter how pretty she is, don't matter how much money she makes, don't matter how much you love her, uh, you know, find yourself a woman that's got a lot of good land access. Um, it's just paramount you know to be the best hunter you can be um then it just makes it so much easier to hunt with your crossbow because you're on private land that's right yeah 
<laughs> it, it's funny because that the, the farm and this pond is literally it's literally borders the national refuge the nwr so um i mean yeah it's it's a pretty cool spot and it's the kind of spot where when that when that refuge when the reservoir freezes up i'll run ice eaters out on it so yeah it's pretty cool but uh one thing that i did want to bring up specifically me being a dog guy or trooper guy is um is uh just knowing the limits of your dog you know what i mean like know what your dog can do uh what's safe for your dog to do um and just stay within those limits i've had some pretty scary situations where i've sent my dog um and uh the the water wasn't this this is just a specific situation the water wasn't too deep it was like three or four uh feet deep but he went running across this ice to get this bird and he actually fell through the ice granted it was three or four feet deep so i was able to just kind of walk out and it was it was an inch and a half thick he just hit a weak spot on it and fell through <clears throat> so i had to kind of do the the walk backwards thing and kind of sit down and break the ice with with my butt as i'm walking backwards because it was it was too thick to break with my shins, but anyways, um, you just kind of got to keep that in mind and, and don't expect a dog that you haven't worked with to be able to go out and retrieve a 75 yard blind that's across the way. And you're just out there in your decoy screaming, ruining your party's experience and anybody else in the marsh. They don't want to listen to you screaming at your dog out there or yeah. screaming at your dog in the blind that won't sit down. And uh, for the guys that hunt with me, my number one rule is do not shoot my dog. If my dog is in the water, you are not shooting anything out there. You know what I mean? Right. Um, I, I know a guy personally that had his Chessie shot in the face at about 35 yards to the point where she has a hole in her ear and she ended up losing her eye because the guy mistook her as a, uh, as a crippled bird swimming in the water. So, yeah, it's... It's a serious thing. I mean, I, I always have to remind myself that as fun as waterfowling is and, and um, as enjoyable as it is, it's a dangerous thing that we do. Um, it's any, every boat ride that you get on could be your last, you know what I mean? So it's just the biggest thing here that I want to really push onto people is just to be safe for you, your dog and everybody else around you. There's just, there's too many things that can go wrong if, if you're negligent in your decisions and um, yeah, just focus on safety. If, if, if you're doubting your actions, then just don't do them. Just don't do it. Yeah. The safe choice is always the right choice. Um, Definitely. We, I think we do get caught up in this kind of like, Oh man, I'm a badass. Um, I'm going to stay out here for another 10 minutes, even though I know that I'm going to get caught up in this. And this happened to me last season. Uh, I wanted that one last flight of mallards. And then, uh, Ian, I don't know if do you remember that big old blizzard that rolled in here around Christmas last year. Um, oh, yeah. I was out, yeah, I I was out in the March yeah. when that thing hit at 10 a.m. And it took me and my buddy Austin about what, what is regularly a 20-minute drive um, to our house. It took us four and a half hours um, <laughs> to get home. <laughs> All because we wanted to stay for another 10, 15 minutes when wow. had we just looked, yeah, there it comes. We need to leave. Um, <laughs> yeah, man, we were I, like that picture uh, that's on the Facebook group. 
yeah. the banner, that's from when the blizzard was starting. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was bad. It was bad. Uh, oh, it looks bad over there, but I think I'm just going to take some pictures of it and get a couple <laughs> more minutes out of it. Exactly. That's not, you know, that's not a, oh man, my wife, our wives were ticked. Um, but anyways, yeah, the safe choice is always the right choice. Um, all right, Andrew, uh, was that your, was that your, your closeout comment right there? Yeah, just be safe out there, guys. I mean, there's just, like I said, too many things that can go wrong. Um, and, uh, if it's a, if it can hinder anybody else in a negative way, just don't do it or try and work around it. Just try and think of other people. And, and I always try and think like, maybe that's a, a, a dad and his son, or maybe that's a grandpa and his grandson over there. Like, I don't want to be a dick to those guys. You know, not everybody that's screwing up out there is doing it on purpose. Um, and not everybody out there is just some young kids that don't care. Yeah. You know, exactly. you'd, you'd be surprised the kind of people that sit in the duck blind for the first or Maybe even the last time. You never know. You know what I mean? So you just kind of got to keep that in mind. You should always stay humble and, and remind yourself that it's not all about you out there. And it is public. It does belong to everybody equally. And uh, it's an experience to be shared. That's the point of waterfowling. That's why we all love it is that it's something that brings us all together to enjoy and and have a good time and do whatever you guys do out there. We like to cook breakfast and drink coffee and do that kind of stuff so oh yeah yeah be safe out there guys well yeah man thanks thanks for bringing this all up ian um what what do you got for a closeout from my closeout uh i'm gonna skip the safety part i endorse safety but you guys beat that horse um i'm a proponent of be a good dude or do that and go just go so um Regardless of a negative experience you've had or that you've heard of, uh, which I know firsthand, I've run into that a million times where someone says, where are you hunting or where have you been hunting? And I'll say, oh, this public land spot here. And they brush it off, say, oh, it's terrible. It's awful. Public land hunting is terrible. So on and so on. And I think that right there in itself is a huge problem. Um, just go. So if you go in the marsh and you have a bad experience or someone gets in your way, move and and stay out there and hunt and take that and grow from it and continue the conversation uh, but at the end of the day you just need to go outside and you need to go hunting um, and you need to do it ethically um, and you need to be a good dude or a good dudette and pass it on as often as possible that's really what i got oh and of course download powder hook the free mobile app the nation's number one hunting app I was waiting for him to bring it up. I, I knew it was coming. I just, I was like, well, yeah, I was you gave us a pretty solid. Well, you were talking about earlier. I was like, you know what? I don't have to plug this. He's already doing it for me. <laughs> but honestly, that is great. I'm, I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah. We need more people like you because it's, it's people like you and Ben that interact on there and, and help people all across the country, help them. Cause there's a lot of people who are, you know, self-conscious or they're not sure what to do. And, it takes guys like you and, and listeners on this podcast to make a difference. And that applies to making a difference on how we interact with one another in the field and in the marsh and making a difference in advocating for our public lands and making a difference in getting more people out in the field, having a great day outside. Yeah. What's nice about powder hook too, is as opposed to, uh, 
you know, some of your other social media stuff or other apps is, um, you can go on there and I know I'm only going to see outdoor stuff, you know, Yep. which is primo for me. Um, and getting in there and being able to answer somebody's question on there. And when I go through there, uh, you know, somebody asks a question, I get an alert, I answer it and I look up through like, what are some of the other comments that were made? And there's nothing about how the guy's an idiot or how he should know better or anything like that. It's just a really positive hunter helping hunter uh, or outdoors person helping outdoors person um, conversation. So, And then selfishly, the map is pretty great. So <laughs> I honestly really liked the fact that he had the weather on there. Like it just keys in the weather for your location. That's super handy to me. Rather yeah, than having no all this ahead, stuff, all this stuff that you're looking at that you like, it changes where you're standing in real time, and it also changes. You can manipulate it to a different place, so you can look at the you know if you for some reason let's say you're going to go hunt in Washington, but you live in Oregon, right? You can move the map over, and it's going to populate the weather, and it's going to start to populate a feed from people who live in Washington. And same with if you want to ask a question, um, like I. I went on a hunt earlier this year and I traveled with a firearm and I wanted to make sure my, my rifle was still zeroed and I dropped the pin before the door shut on the airplane and I asked the question, hey, where's a good range to go uh, confirm my zero? And when I landed, I had a couple answers and they're the kinds of answers that you can't get off of Google. It's the kind of answer that comes from someone who has lived there and experienced it. So, that all right, I'm, I'm taking up too much time. My plug's running long. Download the app. Duck hunting's great. Be a good, be a good dude or do that. All right. Well, hey, I appreciate both of you gentlemen uh, taking time out of your evening with uh, your families to come uh, help new hunters out. Uh, and I really appreciate it. And the one last thing I did want to say, my closeout is I remembered what that other outdoors group is called, and it's called Bike and Hike. It's got Hook and Bullet and Bike and Hike. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Not that important, but I'm sure somebody was <laughs> super irritated that I didn't know no that. Waited. Somebody waited till 80 minutes, 45 seconds for you to say that. And they're like, oh, finally. Yeah, that, that was actually planned. That was, I'm so strategic. That's how you get them. Yeah, 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 for sure. All right, boys. Well, hey, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. All right, thanks, thank ben. you. Have a great night, gentlemen. Yep, yeah, you too. too. Bye. Sure. All right, Hey, you ever been sitting in front of your TV just wondering why you can't catch the latest episode of The Foul Front right there in your living room so you can press all your guests and family with your fine taste and podcast listening? Me neither. But hey, as a part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective, you can now find The Foul Front and some other great podcasts on your Apple TV, your Roku, your Amazon Fire Stick, Smart TV, even your gaming console just by downloading the Waypoint app. And heck, while you're there, they got over 2,500 hunting and fishing shows on demand. Go download the Waypoint app today.